Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for this wonderful privilege to gather together as family in the unity of the faith. Thank you for this blessing called North Christian Church, this local assembly that you've ordained for us, this family. Uh, your grace is overwhelming, Father, uh, in so many ways. It's so abundant in ways that we can't even imagine. And, uh, we're just so very grateful, Father, for whatever bit of recognition we're given uh, in time to, to realize just even what we might fairly call a sliver of your grace and your love. We know there's so much more and we regret not realizing more of it, but we look forward to that everlasting hope that is eternal life with you so that we continue to realize all that is your essence, which is really grace and love. Thank you for revealing those things to us even by becoming a man and hanging on a cross to make even a night like this a reality to cancel out that debt that had us sentenced rightly so to the lake of fire. There's nothing we can do but say thank you for sending your son and for living in gratitude towards his good work on our behalf. We do just ask your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this message evening, this title's, uh, did I say that right? This evening's message title is, Why are the Apostles so encouraging? By grace, they were prepared, part eight. Um, from Tuesday's review lesson, go to 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Most of you probably already know what this says, but you know how it goes. Um, every time we go to Scripture, it just keeps on giving. 1 Thessalonians 5.16. This was brought out, uh, brought to light on Tuesday evening in a wonderful way. It's been coming up time and again in our studies, uh, which has been fantastic because each time... Uh, a bit more of grace is measured out, at least in my soul, um, when I read this. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, just simply think about that. Rejoice always. I mean, we could walk away. I could do one of those sort of uh, profound lessons and be like, rejoice always. Have a good night. And that would be sufficient because you should be able to think about that for the rest of tonight and for the rest of your life. What does that mean, to rejoice always, and then pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks? For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And as I taught in the past, that's one, essentially one thought from the author. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So we've been getting this perspective, um, and 1 Thessalonians 5 obviously highlights it, this perspective on joy, um, you know, it's easy, I guess it's easy to sort of mull around life and it's easy to get sort of downtrodden. Uh, even John and I were talking about this today. It's easy to, to let the world erode your joy um, if you're not careful. But perspective can change everything. And that's what I love about Bible class. That's what I love about the Bible. It's what I love about just living in the light of Jesus Christ and his gospel. Joy, a la 1 Thessalonians 5.16, which is rejoice always, comes from appreciating the things that God has given us by grace. We have to appreciate. That's where our joy comes from. It's not from the next toy. It's not from the, the nice meal. It's not from those things are fine, but it's as I've taught, it's, you know, the first order thing. It's what you think of the things that he's done in your life. It's what you think of his, the grace in your life. Do you appreciate it? Or do you become familiar as the Spirit's been warning us and cautioning us as of late? Joy comes from appreciating the things that God has given us by grace. It's one thing to receive them. It's another thing to appreciate what you've been given. When we do, 
It's from our hearts that we utter the following, and this came up on Tuesday as well. When you have that attitude, when you rejoice always, glory be to God. That's a, an utterance of respect, awe, fear, and appreciation from a humble heart. If this is a vapid sentiment, vapid just means void of any substance. If this is a vapid sentiment from the lips only, it is useless, fruitless, and unwholesome even. You might say, how can it be unwholesome? I mean, glory be to God, right? Even, I guess even a, if a parrot said it, it would mean something. Not really. Not really. Because as we've been learning, these things have to be properly motivated. It means that your heart has to be right with God, has to be oriented to God for these statements to have any meaning. And I always, anytime I think about that, I think of the demon-possessed girl that Paul was like, get away from me. Right? She was making money for those unholy individuals. And she was backing the apostles at the time and saying, you know, this gospel thing is true. And, it, you know, that she was repeating it. And he said, you're a nuisance. Get away because your heart's not in it. You're demon-possessed. So words are really nothing unless there's a heart behind them. They're useless, fruitless, unwholesome. Go to Ephesians 4.29. Ephesians 4.29. I suppose that's also why we shouldn't pretend to rejoice. I mean, put a fake smile on our face. If we don't have true cause for rejoicing, we need to go deeper. We need not just to say, well, you know, I, I, I play a good game and um, you know, I make other people happy by smiling all the time. And, um, you know, you kind of go through these motions, and that's not any good. Um, Ephesians 4.29, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed, for the day of redemption. So anything that comes out of your mouth that is vapid, that is um, void, if you would, of proper motivation, proper heart, uh, is useless, fruitless, and we might call it unwholesome. You might say, geez, that's kind of a strong statement. It's really not. Because saying glory be to God uh, with wrong motivation, uh, if it's not good, then it must be bad. <laughs> uh, it's unwholesome, and we don't think that way always. We don't think of we think unwholesome is like some kind of a swear word or a dirty joke or coarse jesting or something like that. That's true, but that's not the only unwholesomeness that exists that comes from our mouths. We have to watch what we're saying. Are we becoming religious? Are we just sort of you know la 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 doing this thing? Are our actions even sort of just on cruise control? So there's a lot to think about there. The point in the board again, um, when someone says something like glory be to God, if this is a vapid sentiment from the lips only, it is useless, fruitless, unwholesome. So the question has been, how do we engage as mere humans, as servants, with the glory that God intends to bring him to himself? How do we engage as mere humans, as servants even, with the glory that God intends to bring to himself. It seems like if he does all the work, then where does that leave us? We serve, we worship, we love. We serve, we worship, we love. I think that's a good place to start. I think that's a really good place to start. That's how we engage with the glory of God. We serve, we worship, we love. And with the right perspective, we understand that life is really just an opportunity to serve. Why are we left here? Why are we left here? To serve our perfect master. That's why. So life really, if you net it all out, is an opportunity to serve the Lord. Not ourselves, that's what our flesh wants. Um, not our idols, that's what the world wants. But the Lord. We serve, we worship, we love. So with the right perspective, we understand that life really is just an opportunity to serve. But also, as the Spirit's been pointing out, the timing must be right for it to be good fruit. And so this is a bit of a balance statement that I heard from Tuesday as well, that timing matters. It's wonderful to have that perspective. Okay, 
I'm here because I'm supposed to serve. But we can become artificial. We can manufacture false timelines even. Um, we might have, quote, good hearts, but timing matters. Consider, I was thinking about this, consider Moses, who was called to deliver the Israelites from e Egyptian bondage to the Promised Land and then wandered for 40 years. Some of you haven't even been alive for 40 years. Think about that. For 40 years, he wandered in the desert, probably saying, you know, hey, <laughs> what's going on? I'm just saying. <laughs> These people are awful. You know, just saying. 40 years? Just think about that. Think about the things we've been through as a family. And it hasn't even been 10 years in this congregation. 40 years? And really, you know, for lack of a better term, the, the promise hadn't been given yet. It was almost like he... God put out a carrot and then said, I'm going to make you wait indefinitely. It would seem indefinite if you're going, you know, on the 39th year, you're probably like, heck with it. It's not going to happen. Right? <laughs> and then he had all the pressure of these implacable, complacent, sort of gnawing, uh, fickle individuals. It was awful. And uh, so he was under intense pressure from those he led. And while being compelled to serve the Lord, we mustn't force the issue in our fleshly impatience. In other words, if God had Moses, good old Moses, 40 years wandering in the desert, you know, there are timing issues that are far beyond our own sort of ideas. Um, and some of us struggle with those things more than others, right? Especially, quote-unquote, type A types that we just want to charge forward. And God's like, <laughs> that's not how it works. So food for thought, timing matters. Maybe, just maybe, on that note, the Lord God has given you this or some plateau. Um, some plateau time to get you to stop and take a breather. Maybe he's, that's what he's doing in you. Maybe he's saying, there's no way you're going to listen to what I'm trying to tell you if you're running you know, Mach 5 with your hair on fire every day. You're not going to listen. That's what happened to me, by the way. <laughs> you, <laughs> you're never going to listen to me. And so sometimes he has to halt the presses and put us out to pasture, put us out to plateau, you know, where it just doesn't seem like nothing really is happening. But very much so something is happening, and I think that's what the Spirit's trying to impress on us is that maybe just maybe the Lord God has given you some plateau time to get you to stop and take a breather. And I was thinking about that today as I was talking with uh, Pastor Farley. We talked about the value of taking care of our own vineyards. I mean, he's up in a hospital, right? Only between him and God, only he knows what kind of timeout and what kind of things are being worked out in his soul. But I shared uh, last year, probably at the beginning of last year, that the Lord was heavy on my heart to find me again. I had kind of been consumed by the ministry. And I know some of you can relate. You get consumed by certain aspects of your life, and a lot of times it involves other people. You know, you have a good heart. You want to care about it. I mean, you all love people. I know it. I know just from knowing what little I know about you that you have people in your lives that you look after, you care about, that Maybe they're struggling, and maybe you're having a struggle of your own, trying to keep up with caring for this individual or these individuals. And um, my response to that, based on my own experience in Scripture, is don't forget to take care of your own vineyard. You've got to do what you've got to do, because you're no good if you're toast. You're no good if you're a shriveled up vine on the side of the road, because you've effectively separated yourself from the true vine, which is Jesus Christ, right? You're no good. So just remember that. And I was thinking about that when I was talking to John, and uh, we went back and forth. But anyways, back to our lesson. Maybe God wants you to step back and remember the abundance of grace in your life, like right now. Instead of charging forward, looking for more grace, how about just stopping and saying, you know, I have an awful lot to be thankful for, like an awful lot. 
I may not have what this person has or, you know, the Smiths have or my neighbors over here. Or, you know, I may not be this or that. And I kind of wanted those things. I kind of had planned on them when I was younger, but I don't have them. Um, that's kind of obnoxious, isn't it? It, it really is to, 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 to think that way. Because everything that we have is undeserved. So what are we doing? Like, what are we doing? We're being influenced by the world that says keep on chomping at the bit. Never be satisfied with what God has given you. Never, ever. Always charge forward. Always look for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And then before you know it, your life, you look back and your life was what? A waste. And that's, uh, I think that's in James. He says, you know, we all planning about today and tomorrow. We'll do this business here and that business there. Um, and you're just a vapor. And you miss out on life itself, which is a tragedy. I was also thinking about how we get used to grace. Just think about that. We get used to it. In a very real sense, we become desensitized to it. And here's an analogy for you, a physical one, that most of you can relate to right now. You've already been sitting there in your seats now for about, what, 18 minutes? For about 18 minutes now. Yet, until just now, as I say, can you feel the material between your naked bum and the chair? No, I'm being serious. Have you, do you even think, until, you, until I actually said something like that, you had forgotten about it, right? You don't think about those kinds of things. The truth is that you wouldn't have felt it for a while. Now, granted, you may have consciously felt the weight of sitting in the chair, maybe even feel the, your pants as you adjusted yourself, as you, take, you took your seat, those kinds of things. But until you make a conscious decision to, quote, feel such things, your body and your mind automatically stop feeling, stop consciously being aware of those things. But yet, what if the chair was gone like right now? You'd fall down. So I guess you should kind of be grateful for the fact that you're not on the floor. Think of, uh, what is it, Hebrews 1.3 or 3.1. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Even physics, the fact that that chair is staying together, the fact that the electrons and the atoms and such and the molecules that make up that chair actually hold together is by the Lord. So you're actually sitting comfortably because of his faithfulness, which is grace. But yet we become familiar with it, don't we? There are some people in this world that have never sat in a chair that nice, ever. Ever. And you say, well, this chair's like uncomfortable. By American standards, maybe. By the rest of the world, probably not. And yet we're familiar with just sitting there. So we automatically stop feeling such things, at least in the most practical sense. The human body is really good at shutting out things that have proven to be consistent and predictable. As soon as they become consistent and predictable, we shut them out. Even the human body does it. And our psyches seem to do the same thing over time as well. In other words, we only consciously keep, let's call it feeling, outside stimuli when we don't, when we don't have confidence in its predictability. Now, if that was a chair, right, and the day before someone had toppled over in it, you'd probably be sitting there, the whole class going, is this thing wiggling? Is it wiggling? I think I feel it wiggling, right? You'd be, because you'd have no confidence or you would have very little faith in its predictability to hold you up. So your mind would be drawn to it. In other words, we again, we only consciously keep feeling outside stimuli when we don't have confidence in its predictability. While it's a valuable skill, lest we be overcome by stimuli, I mean, think about it, it can be horrible when applied to the spiritual life. And I think it's fair to say that one of mankind's greatest plagues is complacency due to familiarity. So we know there's a relationship between you know, confidence and predictability and familiarity. 
as the Spirit's been pointing out, familiarity is a function of the faithfulness of others. The example you were given was me, the ministry, etc., those that serve you here. It's a wonderful example. And it's obvious that we all become familiar with certain graces in our lives. So I was reflecting on that even further. You know, I've never had a person disagree with me when I've said something like this. You know, if I were a train wreck, completely unpredictable, unfaithful to my pulpit, my flock would never become familiar with me. In fact, I'd be willing to bet they'd be more attentive to me than ever before. I'm serious. Why? Because it would draw your attention. You would have no faith in my, well, confidence in, my, in, in me as a faithful individual. The predictability of the man behind the pulpit, even. So I would draw your attention to me. And you'd probably pay more attention to me. Oddly enough. Not that I'm needed. I'm not, this isn't about me, so I hope you get what I'm saying. I'm just proving a point, how familiarity works. Every time I've ever shared that sentiment, the other person or persons have nodded and said, even sometimes after a little introspection, you know, you are absolutely right. If you were a train wreck, you'd get more support and probably more shows of love than you do now. It's goofy, isn't it? But that's the same thing that I've been trying to say. We become desensitized. The more faithful and predictable something is in our lives, whether it's physical, psychological, even spiritual, we become desensitized. And it's a tragedy. Who cares about the physical stuff? Whatever. But spiritually, grace, becoming familiar with grace, that's a tragedy. Because let's unravel where we just came from. Rejoice always. How are you going to rejoice always if you don't appreciate all the grace in your life? If you're the person who's plateaued and you're like, well, you know, what have you done for me lately? Well, what about all the things that you've become familiar with? Hmm. So I believe it's fair to say, and this is scripturally supported up here on the board, regarding familiarity is a function of the faithfulness of others. And for example, your pastor, that's fine. It is something that feeds off the predictability of the most faithful individuals we've got in our lives. Who's more faithful than the Lord Jesus Christ? And who are we more familiar with? Oh, it hurts to think about, doesn't it? It sure does. Who's more faithful than the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, the amount of grace that he gives us. I mean, he sent his spirit. The very, to net it out, power source for the spiritual life. I mean, think about that. He sent him to encourage us, to teach us, to minister to us, to empower us every step of the way. And he's always there. Matter of fact, he indwells us. So there's no, there's no comparison between the, the most faithful person in your life and Jesus Christ. There's no comparison. And yet, who are we more familiar with? Jesus Christ. It's incredible. It's no wonder we treat him the way we do. Every single one of us loves the idea that he saved us. Amen? But yet, we're all familiar with him just the same. How awful. Something that came up on Tuesday. <clears throat> grace in our faces daily. The abundance of grace in our life is so predictable that we become familiar with it to our own detriment. And this is that point that the spirits had me keep coming back to. It's not about me. It's not about the ministry. It's not about you becoming familiar with any one person in your life. It's the simple fact that when you become familiar with his grace, it's to your detriment. That's what he's trying to say to you. He's saying when you become familiar, you suffer. It's not a slight to the individual who's really faithful because they're serving the Lord. It's actually a detriment to your own soul, to your own life, your own ability to, 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always. That's how it works. So familiarity is, is like a death knell, if you would. God is able to glorify himself despite our failures 
but in our familiarity, we lose out on the rejoicing in such facts. What a wonderful thing to just be in the path of, I just related to or a servant of, or the ability to worship and love the fact that God is glorified. Just think about that, that God is glorified. You should love that. You should love that the God of this universe is glorified, is worshipped, is loved. Those basic facts should be overwhelming to us. But yet we're so familiar. I'm serious. We kind of just, even when we, I mean, I know I'm so, quote, proud of all of you for reading your Bibles more and more. But I bet you, you know, and I catch myself doing it. We read our Bible and we just go, do you know what I mean? No, look, like, but this is, uh, I just opened this up. 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. I bet most of you are like, that just sounds so religious and so like, you know, glory this and glory that. No, dwell on that. That's an amazing verse, amazing passage. We're just so familiar. We lose out on rejoicing. This is why God expresses His will for us through the use of commands and commandments in the Bible. Consider this for a moment. Consider the command we began with this evening. 1 Thessalonians says, without hesitation, what? 5.16, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. You know what those are? Those are commands. Not every command is to be taken as some adolescent, you know, opportunity to buck authority. These are commands. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus even says that's a command from God. It's just said in a more uh, a nicer context, a more friendly, a more what palatable context. But it's no less a command, is it? Rejoice always. So we have to start considering that. Why does God express His commands to us? Go to 2 Corinthians 13.11. 2 Corinthians 13, 11. <clears throat> Speaking of commands. Commands are not always, you know, the rod. Sometimes they're the staff. Sometimes they're more guiding, more gentle, more encouraging. But they're no less commands. This is God saying rejoice always. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, Finally, brethren, rejoice. Yeah, rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace. And when you follow His commands, guess what? The God of love and peace will be with you. That's how it goes. This is beautiful. So when you grow up, like some of you have been, like I have, um, you realize that the commands of God are actually, they're like love notes. They're a loving father saying, do these things, because this is what I created you to do. The reason you don't have harmony in your life, the reason you're disoriented, the reason you don't have peace is because I built you this way, a crude analogy, I built you to run on diesel fuel, and you're running on gas. You understand? You're putting the wrong thing in the engine. You're not actually listening to what I'm telling you. Finally, brethren, rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Paul is giving the Corinthians a command to rejoice. As we continue to grow, we realize that His commands are something we should, not on, we should not only obey, not that we only should obey these things, but honestly are something we want to obey. That's what happens when you grow up in the grace and knowledge of God. You realize that 
his commands are not to be taken through an adolescent lens. That they're from a loving father who's trying to get you straightened out so that you can rejoice always. That you can um, love. Isn't that, isn't that what Jesus said? He said, look, don't, stop worrying about even the law, all the details of the law. If you, if you have my love, you're going to fulfill the law. It's all a matter of perspective. So obedience comes into play, but obedience takes on a different sort of facet as a result as well. If God prepares us, gives us the strength, and then lights the path, the very best we can do is obey His commands. In other words, he, by grace, He does everything for us. Obedience results in blessing. Luke 150, 1 Peter 1, 13 and 19. We noted this through the humility of Mary. We looked at this on, I think, Sunday and Tuesday. Luke 1, 49 to 51, for the mighty one. This is Mary speaking. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and, his holy, and holy is his name, and his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. Well, if you fear the Lord God, you obey him. And it's not that scary fear. It's that awesome fear. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. Again, our principle up here on the board on obedience. If God prepares us, gives us the strength, and then lights the path, the very best we can do is obey his commands. Obedience results in blessing. Go to 1 Peter 1.13 now. It's the other passage there. We are still, and I'm hoping that you don't lose sight of the fact that we, our context is still with the apostles, that we are being encouraged by their faith, by their lives, the way we can relate to them as human beings. First Peter 1.13, again, we're looking at obedience here. What does Peter have to say about obedience? Therefore, First Peter 1.13, Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood. Here's your reason, your motivation for these things, for following and obeying the commands of God, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. That was the Apostle Peter, of course, a man who we've already identified as the apparent leader of the original twelve. And he said in verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Well, let me show you the antithesis of your former ignorance. Go to Galatians 5.19. Galatians 5.19. Remember, there's perfect synergy in the Bible. So while Paul, excuse me, uh, Peter wrote, Peter the Apostle wrote what we just read in 1 Peter, Paul writes in Galatians 5, verse 19, another apostle, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife. These are the things that Peter was saying. Do not be transformed or conformed to those things in your, you know, your former ignorance, he said. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, <coughs> outbursts of anger, <clears throat> disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing. And things like these, of which I forewarn you, 
just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Again, such, against such things there is no law. This brings us back to another theme that the Spirit brought out on Tuesday. Everyone's favorite word, patience. Patience. Patience is a virtue for servants of the Most High God. It's actually fruit of the Spirit, as Paul just wrote. And as we noted earlier, timing matters up here on the board. <coughs> so while we're called to be obedient to the commands of God, we're also called to be patient. The value of patience, and this came out on Tuesday, we tend to look at the finished product when we think about the apostles. But that is a mistake if that's all we consider. I mean, we can't, as quote-unquote wonderful as Paul was, I mean, he wrote the majority of the New Testament, for crying out loud, right? At least in terms of number of books. Or, or the other apostles, we just read Peter or John or whoever. We can't just look at the end product. You can't just do that um, because you're missing out. While this provides us with hope, the greater blessing is to recognize how God's grace prepared them. In other words, how did they get there? Instead of just looking at where they ended up, well, how did they get there? And this is the encouragement that, get, that the Spirit's giving us. By grace, they were prepared. They wrote these books after lifetimes. Some of them spent, you know, a couple of years with Jesus Christ. Like, literally. And so they were writing after all this. And then all of that, you know, all of that um, wisdom was put to the test. Their faith was tested daily. They learned on the job. They were adjusted. Um, that's where we might find encouragement because if you go directly to the end product, you're probably going to be discouraged. You're going to say, man, how am I ever going to? I'm never going to be like Paul. I mean, Paul was crazy. That guy would do anything. I'll never be like, don't say never because with God all things are possible. Some of you are sitting here right now cannot believe the people you've evangelized just in the past year. The conversations you've dared to have just in the past six months. Some of you would have said five years ago, I, will, I, can, I can never see myself doing that or saying that. And there you are, doing these things. All kinds of ministries being born out of this wonderful work. From this one little ministry and God the Holy Spirit working with individuals in the congregation. It's magnificent. So... Even though, I mean, you, some of you look back on your own lives and go, yeah, that's true, I can even, if I was here looking here and God said, I'm going to take you here, you'd say, no way. But here you sit. So, back to patience. We have to be patient with God's timing. So, let's keep this in mind as we, we need to press on. Um, we've only got like 20 minutes left. We need to press on, continuing where we left off a couple of weeks ago with by grace they were prepared. Uh, we were sort of right midstream with the apostles. We need to get back to them uh, specifically. Um, before I left on vacation, I gave you what would, I guess you'd consider a funny visual of the beginnings of our preparation by grace. Something that starts with our being betrothed to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are forever tethered to him. Remember that even though we clang around behind him making a lot of noise. Like this example. The cans behind the, you know, the just married vehicle. That's us. If Jesus is in the car, driving the car, and we're betrothed to our husband, then we're not going anywhere. We're just sort of making a lot of noise at this juncture. And that's okay. The point is that we're, we're still tethered to him. We're swinging around, making noise, but we're still going in the same direction as our Lord. He said, my sheep hear my voice, and they what? They follow me. That's what the cans are doing. They might be making a lot of noise back there. <coughs> they may be bumping into each other, not showing each other a whole lot of love every day, but they are following the Lord. 
up here on the board. While the Bible tells us that a saved person will persevere in following Jesus, just like he said they will, you know, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, John 10, 27, the Bible also says that we won't walk a perfectly straight line when doing so. That's Romans 7, 25. And the apostles are a perfect example of that. They never stopped following, and if we get to that this evening, Peter says that magnificent, it's one of my favorite verses in all scripture. Not that we should have favorites, but you know what I mean. Where else am I going to go? Are you going to leave me now too? Remember he said this? He said this to his uh, apostles. Are you going to leave me now too? Because this is after everybody started leaving him. Because remember, Jesus didn't have a problem with telling people the way it was. Jesus didn't have a problem saying, this is the line. If you still want to cling on to your old self, then you're not coming across the line. And people would leave. The circus show was over as far as they were concerned. He said, do you guys want to leave too? And of course, Peter, where else are we going to go? Seriously, we're, you're the Lord. Honestly, where else are you going to go? How many times has somebody ever asked you, um, why don't you just quit? In your heart, you have to say, maybe you don't get asked that stuff, but I get asked that stuff now and again. Why don't you just quit and like, you know, walk away? I can't. I don't have a choice. Does, does anybody in here feel like they have a choice? You shouldn't, because you don't. Because if you feel like you have a choice, something might be wrong, I'm just saying. But you really don't have a choice. You might disappear for a little while. You may throw a little hissy fit. But you are tied, just like those cans, to the Lord. And if you're saved, you know that you're tied. You know it. It's not kind of like, oh, maybe I am. No, you know that you're tied to the Lord. It's one of the litmus tests we can give ourselves. And that's not me saying that. That's scripture. But before we get there, we find encouragement from this other apostle again. Go to Romans 7.25. Romans 7.25. It's true. We may follow the Lord, but we do make a lot of noise back there. We don't walk a perfect line. Romans 7.25, and I find this very encouraging. I'm sure you do as well. Romans 7.25, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other hand with my flesh the law of sin. You know, the whole of Romans 7, that's the back and forth. I don't do the things I want to do. I do the things I don't want to do. It's just awful. Because we're, we still have a flesh. So we make a lot of noise. We're not, we don't walk a perfect line, but we do walk with and towards Jesus Christ, our leader. In keeping with the can analogy, then consider this, on that concept of knowing you're saved. If you look in the mirror and can literally, wholeheartedly say, in the presence of God the Holy Spirit, I have no option but to follow Jesus, then you're saved. I didn't say that. This is scripture. And we're going to go here in a moment. 1 John 3, 24, 4, 13, Romans 10, 8 to 10. If you can, in the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, wholeheartedly say, I have no option but to follow Jesus. And I guess you could, in a very real way, uh, you know, men, we're not women, so, but we understand the women that are married a, a, a woman who believes that she is married to a man will follow that man. Period. That's it. If you believe you're married to that man and you believe in marriage in the purest sense of the word, then you don't have an option. Do you understand? I'm not talking about corner cases. Don't start going, oh, what about the... Stop. As far as that bride is concerned... She follows her husband. Period. Go to 1 John 3.24. Why? Because she believes that in the presence of God she got married. 1 John 3.24. So if Jesus Christ truly is your husband then you will follow him because you're his bride. And that's what a bride does. 
The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us. How? By the Spirit, whom he has given us. Who's going to convict you that you're saved? God, the Holy Spirit. Who's going to tell you when you throw in the towel for the day? I'm just done. The Spirit's going to be right there going, you can't quit. Go pout for a little while. But I'll be right here. We'll be right here. Because we're inside of you, by the way, so we're not going anywhere. So you can turn us off for a moment. And, you know, that might be dissipation. I just got to drink, drink you away. Here we go again. Right? That's dissipation. And then he's right there again in the morning. How's that hangover? <laughs> this, is the, this, is, this is Scripture saying, if you're saved, God the Holy Spirit, who's very capable, by the way, omnipotent, some say, just saying, will tell you, you have no other choice now. You're married. You're betrothed in, you know, in Jewish jurisprudence or whatever jurisdiction. Um, betrothed is basically the same thing. You'd have to get divorce um, to leave even a betrothed situation. So you're married, effectively, to the Lord. And the Spirit's going to tell you, you don't have a choice. You're now married. Go to 1 John 4.13. 1 John 4.13. So like a lot of women have to figure out, I guess, um, if you're married, then you have to find a way to rejoice in that situation. Because what does the Bible say in 1 Thessalonians 5.16? What does it say again? Rejoice always! And some, some brides are like, I think I need, to, I, need, I think I need more of verse 17. Pray without ceasing for my husband and my sanity. But this is the whole point. If God the Holy Spirit says, I am the Spirit of Christ, by the way. He is. It's the Spirit of Christ. So he and Christ are basically the same in terms of who they are and their convictions. He's going to tell you, you're not going anywhere. There's no divorcing uh, the Lord if you're truly saved. And so you have to, what? Oh, here it comes. You ready? Submit. Submit! Oh, there's that word that women hate, the feminists. I submit. <laughs> but you don't have a choice if you're saved. 1 John 4, 13, but... By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. Again, the Spirit's going to convict the person. Yeah, you, you can't, you're stuck. You are not stuck in a bad sense. You know, it's like a Huey Lewis, happy to be stuck with you, right? Remember that? Um, so, nobody? It's a very good thing that you're stuck to this husband. You know, if you've got a moron for a husband... It's only for what, 70, 80 years? No, I'm being, I'm being serious. Learn how to rejoice in whatever you've been given. You know, maybe you're not a prize either. I'm just, I'm just saying, throwing it out there. Right? This jerk chose you. <laughs> Making friends. That's all the Spirit's saying. If you can look in the mirror and can literally wholeheartedly say in the presence of God the Holy Spirit, I have no option but to follow Jesus, then you are saved. Let me give you uh, our final scriptural reference on this. I'll give you in the Amplified Classic, which is kind of neat. <laughs> I just learned about this. I think Monica wrote about it. I think he used it once. Well, you did. Someone did recently. And I was like, there's an Amplified Classic. And I looked it up, and there it is. And it's pretty cool. So here we go. Romans 10.8. But what does it say? The word, God's message in Christ is near you, on your lips and in your heart. That is the word, the message, the basis and object of faith which we preach. Verse 9. Because if you acknowledge and confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, and in your heart believe, adhere to, trust in, and rely on the truth that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For with the heart a person believes, adheres to, trusts in, and relies on Christ, and so is justified, declared righteous, acceptable to God. And with the mouth he confesses, declares openly, and speaks out freely his faith, and confirms his salvation. These are all the little litmus tests that we can take. They're right there for us. Back to our principle again, knowing you're saved. If you look in the mirror, you can literally say, I have no option but to follow Jesus, then you're saved. And I absolutely love, <clears throat> excuse me, the apostles' attitude, especially that Peter says, or what Peter says when questioned by Jesus about following him. I sort of let the cat out of the bag, but we're going to read the whole passage, and that'll be all we can do this evening. And I want you to keep the point on the board in your mind as we read this magnificent passage of Scripture. And we're going to go back a little bit earlier than the, the actual spot where Jesus and Peter have this conversation. For the sake of context, go to John 6.35. John 6.35. <clears throat> you know, once you have the context and once you learn to appreciate the grace that God bestowed on the lives of the apostles, and you begin to read your Bible for context even, everything comes alive. Everything's much sweeter. John 6.35 Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that, all, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also, which I will give for the life of the world, is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Remember, not all disciples were believers. But there are some of you who do not believe. 
For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. I taught you that not too long ago. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Huh. And this harkens of John's statement uh, in his epistle later on up here on the board, 1 John 2, 19, where he says, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are they all are not of us. And that's all John's saying. I mean, John wrote the uh, gospel we're reading right there as well. He knew. He saw disciples following Jesus for a time, and then they took off. Because, I don't know, because they, what, were there for the wrong reasons? Um, weren't tied to the bumper? Weren't truly saved? Uh, all those things. And that's what he was saying. Not every, quote, disciple is a, follow, a true follower of Jesus Christ. Now, here's where I love Jesus' boldness, and this is what we'll close with. In asking His disciples the same thing the Spirit has asked many of you over the past year or so, and it speaks to the point that instigated our reading this passage up here on the board. Again, if you look in the mirror and can literally, wholeheartedly say in the presence of God the Holy Spirit, I have no option but to follow Jesus, then you are saved. Now look at verse 67. I love this. So Jesus said to the 12, so everybody just, a bunch of people just split, right? They took offense. How could this be? They took off. Didn't understand it. Spiritually appraised things. A natural man can't anyways. We know that. So Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? Of course, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Think about that. Just dwell on that. Dwell on that in your own life. Where are you going to go, my friends? Seriously, to whom, <laughs> whom shall we go? Only a person who, who is betrothed to the Lord, only a person who loves the Lord, only a person who is a true sheep of the Lord is going to say that thing, is going to say that in their own heart. Where am I going to go? I've already got the very best grace gift that I don't deserve of all time. I have the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, where, am I go where are we going to go? <laughs> Seriously. Where are we going to go? Only, you see, obviously those other people had somewhere to go. Honestly, why didn't they have that? They didn't have that attitude. Otherwise, they would have stayed, right? But they left. So they obviously thought and felt and knew they had other options still. But Peter knew. He did it. They didn't. The 12 were like, hey, you know, look. Who are we going to go? I don't know what Judas was saying, but that's another side. Lord, to whom shall we go? Peter was, remember, the voice of the group often. He was the, you know, the leader, so to speak. You have words of eternal life. Up here on the board, I guess I'll end with this. It's just such a magnificent thing for all of us to think about over the weekend. Lord, to whom shall we go? Make that personal. Peter's words epitomize the one thing that separated the apostles from the rest of Jesus' quote, disciples, some of which weren't yet saved, a la John 6.64, 1 John 2.19, humility. Submission and surrender are fruit of humility, the essence of God's grace in salvation. Where are we going to go? We've surrendered our lives. We've surrendered ourselves to you. We have nowhere else to go. We're changed even. Where are you going to go? Ask yourself that question this weekend, uh, the next time you get pouty, or whatever you do in your moodiness. Where are you going to go? And pay special attention to what the Spirit's going to say to you in that moment. You're going to be like the husband who has to sit there and watch his wife throw a tantrum and go, are you almost done? Because you're not going anywhere. You can't go anywhere. You're married to me. <laughs> Just kidding.
Jesus doesn't do that. <laughs> Bill. It's true. I mean, where are you going to go? you got nowhere to go. This is what we have. And if you've had bad experiences with marriages on earth, don't worry about this. We're talking about the one that matters for all of eternity. We're talking about our Lord and Savior. If you are married to him, you will know it, and you will know and be reminded of daily, always, that you belong to him. And that even in your low moments and your you know, moments of murmuring and whatever you're doing, um, you know and you will be reminded of the simple fact that you, you're not going anywhere. And that's a very, very good thing. Amen? Our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together again as family, to break bread for your son is the very bread of life. Thank you for allowing us to dine on him and his word. And uh, This is really where we are rejuvenated where we are encouraged to go back out of this local assembly to put on the breastplate again, to put on the armor of God and just the ability to go out and fulfill the Great Commission, Father. What a grace, privilege, and blessing this is. May we never become familiar with it. We do just ask for your blessings and traveling mercies as we go forth to do so. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Thank you.